Hi everyone and welcome to another Take Charge podcast. We have an amazing guest for you today. Now, this special guest today is one of the most successful coaches in history. These guys work with Nick Price, Greg Norman, Sebriano Balesteros, but also is most famous for his work that he did with Nick Faldo in the 1980s, where Nick later went on to win six majors. It's a fantastic interview. This is an interview that we wanted to do for a while. So David, welcome to the Take Charge podcast. Thank you. Nice, nice to, to see, see you. you guys. Good to see you, yeah. David. Yeah. How are you? I'm um, very well, thank you. Very well. Been yeah. travelling a lot recently. I have. Yeah, I, I put my share of miles in uh, as I normally do. Uh, I'm trying to slow down, but I don't know. There's still a demand, which is good, I suppose. You know, yeah. it's, a, it's a good problem to have. So yeah, yeah I've been uh, been travelling around a little bit, but uh, no, it's it's all good stuff. Good, good. So we, we've known you now for a, a couple of years, sort of personally, but as far as um, you've been an inspiration for us for probably 20 years plus now. With, with, with what you've done, the work that you've done. But it, I think for anyone who's listening to this, it'd be great to know where it all started for you mm. and how your career's developed. And just, you know, just give us a little bit of a brief history in, in, a, in a couple of minutes. Yeah, we've got, we've got, yeah, we'll limit our time here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, been a, it's been a great journey. Look, I, 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 I was born in the UK, spent my first few years uh, living down in Sussex and then my family we moved out to Africa moved out Rhodesia was then Zimbabwe as it is now hence my association with people like Nick Price and Mark McNulty and Dennis Watson during the days and so uh, you know we went out there when I was seven I think yeah seven years old um, so participated in a lot of sports you know my family was always very sporty I played a lot of cricket a lot of tennis athletics and you know, golf was just one of those games you played in school holidays, and you know I really enjoyed it. It was a, it was, it was a different deal from a. It was a bit like tennis from a standpoint. It was more of an individual sport. So we had a, a, a great junior program out there, and we played you know, tournaments sort of I don't know five times a week probably. Uh, so so I, I really enjoyed it, and then I, I actually got uh, while I was still at school, I got a part-time job working at uh, one of the local golf clubs. Um, uh, it was called Henry Chapman, which they played the Zimbabwe Open on quite a few times and what have you. And uh, a lot of, uh, uh, that's where Nick Price used to play a lot and Dennis Watson. And so we, I mean, going back in the day, Simon Hobday, you know, a, a sort of a, a hilarious mentor who unfortunately passed away uh, uh, last year. But uh, so we, you know, it was really a, you know, it was a sporting community. And uh, I just enjoyed, I enjoyed the, the golf side of it, even even the business side of it at the, at the very early stages. So I, you know, my game improved, and uh, so I went to college. Uh, uh, finished finished high school there, and I went to college for about nine months. I think I said, no, this is not for me. You know, so not the studious type. And so um, the professional at the golf club said, hey, listen, you know, I'm looking for a full time assistant. Would you, you know, would you like to, would you like the job? And I sort of jumped at it, and so. You know, my parents went overexcited, overly excited, you know, it's like, what the heck are you doing? You know, because they wanted me being an accountant and that was the last thing I wanted to be. And so, um, so you know, my game got better and I, and I thought, well, listen, you know, I'd, I'd like to, you know, I wasn't a superstar player at a young age, but my game was, was, was good enough. And so I was probably when I turned pro, I was a two handicap. And I, I thought, well, what am I going to do? I said, you know, I'd like to play uh, if, if I'm any good, if I, you know, I was... I was 18 at the time, so I thought, well, you know, whatever, I'd, I'd like to be in this business, but if I'm going to be a club professional or if I'm going to teach, because I, you know, I go out and teach Mrs. Johnson and, you know, 
pro would say, yeah, probably a lesson he didn't want to give, you know, <laughs> oh, go, and, go and work with her or him, you know. So, so anyway, I sort of, you know, I was, I was always a bit of a, uh, a golf buff from the standpoint. I, I loved the te technical side of stuff, you know, I collected magazines and articles and books and uh, Ben Hogan was my favorite book in my, uh, in my early years, as was Nick Price's, funny enough, you know, Modern Fundamentals. So, so, you know, whatever I was working on in my game, Unfortunately, Mrs. Johnson had to work on her again, yeah. so I could actually go out there and sort of, you know, display. Okay, this is what you need to do. You know, so they gave me a chance to get a few balls, and you know, I, I don't think uh, Mrs. Johnson at a 36 handicap was really very good at supernating, but uh, yeah, so, probably a lot of those lessons back then I should have repaid. Yeah. You know, back. But uh, anyhow, uh, and then I um, was thinking about what what I was going to do, uh, whether I was going to go back to the UK or whether I was going to. Uh, uh, anyway, in the interim, I sort of had a chance to come over to America, and I went to a couple of teaching seminars, and they were put on by people like Bob Toskey and uh, Jim Flick, and you know, very well-known teachers mm -hmm. of their era. And, uh, and Bob Toskey still is, you know, he's a, he's a character, and he's, he's in his 90s now. Mm -hmm. uh, so, um, so I, I, it just sort of intrigued me uh, how the game was you know, looked upon over here. I mean, I hadn't spent much time in the UK, really, for probably you know, 15, well, maybe, well, probably 12 years since the time we moved from the UK to Africa. And so uh, when I looked it over here, I mean, my, my second port of call was, uh, I remember I, I first, I flew out and I landed in Louisville, Kentucky, and it was like February, you know, it was freezing. And I thought, oh my God, what is this? Anyway, so I was in some hotel close to by where we were having this sort of PGA seminar, and I thought, well, you know, I got there, whatever, the day before, I thought, well, I've got to, I've got to find a golf course here. So they go, oh, it's just up the road. You know, one thing you have to learn in America that it's just up the road is not like sort of, you know, half mile walk. It's about five mile walks. So anyway, walking this golf course and met the pro there. And uh, we got chatting and I was hitting balls off frozen ground, off, you know, the frozen surface. And, uh, but my next, my, the next week was at Pinehurst. So Pinehurst really sort of opened my eyes. I thought, wow, this is, this is America. This is where I want to be because this is like fantastic. You know, I mean, all the golf courses they had there and Pinehurst number two and so on. Uh, so, but anyway, I, I, I got a lot out of that and I, I went back to, I went back to Rhodesia at the time and I, and I spent a little time in South Africa. I played a, played a few tournaments on the, on the South African circuit, you know, made a few cuts here and there, nothing dramatic. And uh, I did have a chance, I, I actually made the cut, I think it was a PGA at Wanderers, I remember, and I, I, I made the cut and I was drawn to play with Bobby Locke, so I was really excited and unfortunately, you know, Bobby Locke liked to have a, the odd drink or so, and so the night before he drove his car into a tree, he had to withdraw. So there yeah, I was down the tee, and no Bobby Locke. So anyway, but I did get to play nine holes at one stage, which was fun. But um, you know, so uh, I then decided oh, so I'm going back to the UK, and actually I entered the tour school at, at uh, Fox Hills. You know, mm, yeah. it was also November. I don't know why it was, was sort of planned in <laughs> <laughs> these places during the cold time. I mean, it was like rock hard and. Anyway, it, it cut a long story short there. I mean, I didn't play particularly well. That, I remember it well just because of the fact that Sandy Lyle got his car done. He, I don't know, he won it by 10 shots or something. So he was you know, obviously the star player. <coughs> Why he had to go through tour school? But I had no idea, but he did. And so, but I wasn't playing very well. And so I knew it was the back nut. It was the last nine holes on whatever. You know, they had two courses there. And... Uh, I sort of, I, I birdied the 10th, I think, and I, I think if I remember right, the 11th was the shortest par four, and I made two, so I went three, two. So, you know, that sort of stokes your interest a little bit, you know, so anyway, so it, it, it sort of 
turned out that I was, uh, I think, yeah, I was like maybe four under playing the last hole. And so, and a friend of mine came down and said, you know, you're really close here. You know, you, you know, make, make birdie this hole. And he said, you've got a really good chance. <laughs> oh, okay. So it was a par five, I remember anyway. So it was like, you know, I had a good dive, a good second shot laid up to, I don't know, whatever, 90 yards. And I hit the shot. I mean, I, I thought, oh man, this is, this is close. And it was literally, probably had about a, maybe six or seven feet, maybe a little longer, maybe eight feet, say, up the hill, a little right to left. I thought, come on now, this just, okay. It's, trust me, no, just don't leave this short. So what did I do? Obviously, I left it short like this in the, in the hole. Anyway, I missed my card by a shot. So I said, you know, maybe there's a, there's a sort of a meaning here. You know, there's the fact that, I, anyway, so as it turned out, I mean, I was, listen, I was struggling for money at the time, and it was like, you know, if I got my card, heaven knows what I was going to do. But, uh, you know, but it was, it was, I was close. But then I actually got a club job in the, in the Midlands, a place called Staverton Park, uh, where actually Woozy won his first first ever professional event. I remember it was like a, one of those regional events, and Woozy won it. And it was it was a brand new brand new course. A farmer owned it, and uh, I don't know how I got the job, but he interviewed me like me. You know, I'm a big I'm a big cricket nut, and he you know he knew nothing about golf. He was a farmer. He was a cricketer. He used to go out to take teams out to South Africa and play, and we got on well. He said, hey. You have at it here. He said, look, I know nothing about golf. I said, I'm a one-man band here. We have no committees here. You can just have at it. So I said, okay. So we opened a, like a driving range there, which was very unusual in the UK at the time, yeah. at a course where you actually have to pay for golf balls. You know? So we had this whole new membership. And so it was fun for, it was really fun for a couple of years. And, um, uh, and maybe two and a half years. And then I actually had a chance. I, I came back out to the States. Uh, one of my mentors, really, who, who passed away this, uh, this past year was Phil Ritson. And Phil Ritson was a really well-known teacher, f- originally from South Africa. I used to go down and sort of take lessons from him when, I, when he was in Johannesburg. And he was actually the golf director at Disney uh, nearby, funny enough. And so when I came over and spent a little time with him, and uh, he, was, he was one of the sort of the probably the pioneers in teaching tour players on a regular basis. He'd have a bunch of players down at Disney. And, um, um, and so I sort of you know, got involved with him a bit and uh, still working a little bit my game, playing some mini tour events. But then I had a chance to, he said, hey, listen, a friend of mine's a, uh, uh, who is Andy Bean's manager, uh, agent, he's, he's, he said, hey, he's, I was speaking to you, speaking, uh, to him about you, and he said, "Hey, listen, we need a we need a teaching pro up in Chicago." So he said, "I can get you a, you can get your job up there and get you work papers." And I said, "Wow, you know." At the time, I was getting married in the UK, and it's like, "Oh my God, what am I going to do?" You know. So I was I was pretty happy, and I thought, "Well, you know what? I just look at this. This was sort of I looked at this could be my future, and so I, I actually accepted the job." Never got married to that girl, unfortunately, <laughs> <laughs> but to past history, but. Uh, uh, and then I, worked, I went and worked up in Chicago for a couple of years, and it was it was interesting because it was a John Jacobs area. John yeah. Jacobs was a very you know prominent back in you know back in the 80s mm-hmm. when I came over, and uh, you know Hank Haney was from up in that neck, from that neck of the woods. So it was a real John Jacobs uh, um, sort of uh, 
enclave, if you will. And when, I remember when they, the pro hired me, he said, now listen, yeah, we all want to teach the same thing. Can you teach this John Jacobs approach? And I said, yeah, because I'd had a lesson with John. You know, I'd, I used to take lessons from different people. I, you know, like I went to see Leslie King when he was alive, you know, down in Lowndes Square in London. And so I, I talked to John about the swing and, you know, he, he gave me a few thoughts. I said, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, John Jacobs was, it was pretty simple, sort of cause and effect, you know. And so, but it lasted about three months before I, I couldn't, you know, it's like, it's like speaking a foreign language phonetically without actually believe, you know, knowing what it really means. I mean, I, I could do it and it was, so then I started teaching, uh, doing my thing. And the problem was is that it, I became very successful and all the head professionals, mm. <laughs> students used to come and see me. So I wasn't sort of in his good graces at all. And so, uh, uh, you know, it last, that lasted a couple of seasons, but it was interesting. It was very interesting because they're getting, getting to know country club life in America. Mm, yeah. I mean, you know, it's... A, it's a very different to the UK. Very, very different. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, it, it was nice being single because, you know, you get all the members with their daughters and what have you. you know, they, <laughs> they want to marry somebody off to somebody with a funny accent. Yeah. <laughs> so, but then I actually, uh, I, I, when I, I came down, I used to come down and uh, I went and played in South Africa one, one of the winters and the next winter I came down here and played some mini tour events. And, and then I uh, met up with Phil and uh, Andy Bean's manager once again said, hey, listen, there's a big, big uh, resort club not far from Disney. It was called Greenleaf, which was a very well-run resort back in the day. I mean, it was, it was, I mean, they played tour school there. They had, a, you know, they had uh, their NCAAs, a big college tournament there. They had uh, one of the women's international tennis tournaments there. So it was a big, big place. So we opened, I opened an academy called the Andy Bean Golf Studio at the time. So we're going back in the days now. And, after about a year doing that, um, we changed it to my name, you know, David Ledbetter Golf Academy, and as I sort of modeled it on the Phil Ritson one at Disney, so I had a lot to thank him for. But, and then, you know, it, it sort of things started to happen because I, I you know, a couple of my pals that I did, Watson, Nick Price, I said, listen, what are you, you know, struggling over in Europe for? And, you know, Nick, Nick in particular didn't like, I mean, although he won the, the European Open or Swiss Open, as, as it was called back then. You know, you didn't particularly like playing in, in Britain. I think if you're from Africa and you grew up with, you know, warm weather on yeah. your back, you, you know, Europe, you know, is, is tougher. Mm. And especially back in the day, there wasn't a whole lot of money back then. So I said, you know, you guys, you need to get over here. And so they stayed with me and, uh, you know, they pretty much sort of, you know, I mean, I, Nick stayed with me for about six months and uh, after which he nearly won the Open back in 1982. And that sort of started a whole chain of things. And then you know, I started teaching mini tour players and I started getting a reputation for teaching good players. And then with the success, obviously Nick won the World Series, Dennis Watson won this World Series. Uh, and then obviously 1985, when it sort of really happened was when I started working with Nick, so Nick Faldo. And so that changed things tremendously. Uh, not initially, initially, you know, we were both, uh, both our names were mud, you know, so, you know. Mm. Why, why is Faldo doing this and who's this idiot, you know, trying to change our golden boy, so to speak, yeah. you know, because he'd already had some success at that mm. point, he'd already won yeah. the Order of Merit, and he'd won Hilton Head, I think, over here at that time, and so, but, you know, two years of really hard, hard work, and you know, obviously it's, uh, uh, the rest was history, the fact that he, you know, he, he won his first major in 1987 at Muirfield, and that really catapulted not only his career but mine, mine as well so I mean obviously I owe a lot to Nick and the fact that we were well chronicled and uh, it, 
I mean, there started, you know, I had IMG managing me and, uh, you know, we opened academies, writing books, doing videos. And so it, it started a whole industry. Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't something I planned. It was just something I fell into just through the, because I, I really, I'd always loved teaching. Even, even when I wanted to be a player, teaching was something that was in my blood and I found it very, very easy, a lot easier than playing. Yeah. You know, I, I, my eye was good <laughs> enough. I could, I could see things, sense things. My, my grandfather on my mother's side was actually one of Britain's leading osteopaths, and, uh, but he was blind and he had a tremendous feel. People would come from all over the UK to see him. And mm. so, you know, people say, well, listen, you've got some of your feel and touch from him. Maybe, who knows? Mm. Uh, it's a good story anyway. Mm. And so, um, but, I, you know, so teaching to me has never been a, it's, 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 it's something I've loved. I mean, it's, it's great when you look at sort of how as you move on into the modern era with all the technology to, to assist us, and I think that's one thing we've got to look at. It. I mean, it does assist, it doesn't take, take the place. No, and I think people lose sight of that fact. If you look at everything now, it's, it's all, all by the numbers, you yeah. know, and it's like I think, you know, some players are overly mechanical, and I, so I think I had the best of both worlds, <coughs> not having grown up in a video era. Yeah. Uh, era. Uh, I learned my, my eyes were trained, and I suppose you look at Probably people like Butch Harmon, the same sort of thing. You know, you sort of use your instincts more yeah. than anything else, and you you look at the ball flight, you hear the sound of the contact, and you're able to relate to it. So now, yes, I mean, we can prove certain things, we can we can quantify things now, which is great. And I, I say, I, and I I'm always a big uh, my advice to a lot of young teachers is for a period of time, don't even teach with any technology, yeah. videos, TrackMan, you name it, just forget about it. See yeah. if you can actually help somebody without without all those yeah. aids, because they are aid, mm-hmm. they don't replace they us. Are. I mean, yeah. there's no way that Trackman has the instinct to no. tell you, okay, well, you're actually, you're over the top here, but you're too far underneath here. Yeah. Okay, that doesn't tell you that. No. And so if you go strictly by the numbers, it's like, okay, it's nice to have when you're, I mean, we use it a lot as far as in that sort of technology, force plates, et cetera, when somebody's really, sw- you know, you take, you take the before, you work with them, you take an after, see where you are, and when somebody's really hitting it well, you now can track where they are. You've got yeah. sort of a, you know, you've, you've got a DNA of, mm. of what's going on when they're doing it well. And it's, then it's, obviously it's easier to sort of then say, well, listen, you can see here, look, you know, when you were playing well, you had the club coming two degrees from the inside. You now I've got it six degrees coming from the inside. So let's have a look at why that's happening. Put it back to that. Yeah. yeah. yeah so, you know, it's, it's, you've got to use it judiciously. <coughs> and I sort of laugh at some of these. I mean, because some people cannot teach without yeah. technology. It's, it's impossible. That's what they know, isn't it? Because they've been brought up in that even like you've come from from no technology and you've been able to sort of develop yeah. and change and adapt to all these things. That yeah, I have. And, you know, it's nice. I mean, the young guys we have around us are sort of really into the yeah. techno age, you know, so they helped me along in a lot of respects. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, really. And, you know, and I think the danger is, too, that so much of modern teaching is sort of geared towards the top player, okay, which is great. I mean, yeah, everybody's interested in the top players. You know, what, you know why Dustin Johnson hit it well yeah. from here and what have you? Well, you know, and... Uh, you know, why does Henrik Stenden hit it well from there? You know, so, so it's, it's fascinating. Mm. But, you know, the average golfer who has probably less time to play and practice than they ever have, ever have in the past, um, it, it can be complicated. So yeah. we have to realize, as I say, we're, we're trying to help the masses to play better. We can't just gear everything mm. towards the 0.001% exactly. of the game that sort of make a living from it. Yeah. And, I mean, going back to Nick Faldo, you mentioned Nick Faldo, David, and, and that's, I think that's really where you made golf instruction very fashionable. And I think, I mean, how did that relationship come back with Nick? And what was the, what, was the, what, what did he want to do? And what, did, what was the sort of your, 
I suppose, your strategy in getting him from, from here to here and that allowed him to then go on and win those six majors? Well, it was a little bit of trial and error, but I honestly, I, I looked at when he, we, we sort of got together, I think at Sun City, and then we, <coughs> that was in 84. So 85 is where he said to me, literally he said, okay, David, I want you to throw the book at me. That was his exact words. Okay, let's start over here. Okay. And, and I said, well, you know, and I was a little, you know, okay. Because uh, I hadn't had anybody quite sort of that blunt, you know, what, what they wanted to do. But he said, listen, he said, I, I'm just completely unhappy with the way I'm playing. Um, I just, uh, you know, I, w- I want to win an open. Okay, he said, I know with my ball flight. Because, you know, Nick always had a sort of yeah. whew, very mm-hmm. spinny ball flight. I mean, with a driver, I mean, the... I remember watching him at Augusta, I think, 84, or no, 85, early in 85. Um, and he was playing pressure, I think, with Nick Price or somebody. But I remember several of his tee shots would actually hit and come backwards, you know, so you could mm-hmm. see the spin that he put on it. So, you know, you get a 20-mile-an-hour wind blowing, you know, yeah. around it's your field. It's probably one of drives. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, so, so he said, what do you think? I said, well, you know, listen, I mean... You have to put a lot into this, and it's going to be, take a lot of time, a lot of effort. And you've got to be patient, and you know you've got to be prepared to sort of go through a few bad times. And and I said honestly, I said if I'm if I'm going to hazard a guess, I would say it's probably going to take you a couple of years to get to where you want to get to. And I, I would just sort of pluck that number out of the sky, and I, I just wanted to give myself a little bit of leeway there. Yeah. And, you know, just say, okay, well yeah, well next week we can get you you know get you right. <laughs> and so and you could never do that today. No. Okay, never yeah, in no. a million. In fact, Nick even said, "Listen, there's no ways I would do that in this day and age. You know, you can't do it. You can't afford it." Yeah. But you know, he was the absolute perfect student. I mean, because he was bound and determined. He didn't care what anybody said, uh, the, the press, the fact that he was playing poorly, and he did. He played poorly for the first year or so. I mean, eighteen months probably. Uh, we we there were glimmers. And I mean, so he put everything on hold. I mean, and the work that we did, I mean, literally, I remember oh, in middle of summer here in Florida, which is not, a, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's hot, it's humid. I mean, he was out there probably hitting a thousand balls a day, you know, two big buckets of balls, but he was so determined, you know, and I had, and I had you know, a fair amount of free time back then to actually really to, to be with him. And we sort of just ground and ground and ground, and we went through it, you know, from, Set up. We worked first of all on getting the backswing more rotary rather than sort of the old high backswing you had. Then, then we, we felt the backswing was in pretty good shape. Then we thought, okay, so now we've got to work forward. You've got to get, you've got to get your legs more stable because, you know, he's got long legs. Uh, and so it, the stability factor was never there. It was always sort of big, you know, the old sort of yeah. big reverse C and so on. And so uh, we were able to sort of work piece by piece. And it, it, was, it, was, it was a lot of work and... It was it was fun. I mean, mm. to me, I enjoyed it because this yeah, it wasn't very much so. And here's you know, it's and you didn't like. You, I didn't want to call it an experiment no. because I mean, you're playing with somebody's life and their career, mm. and so, and say we were getting you know, slagged off in the press all over the place, especially in the UK. You know what the heck, you know, and uh, so, but it. it Back then in 1987, there were sort of some real glimmers sort of early in the year, and uh, it was. I think he played, it was, it was the last time that happened for a number of years, but he, he, he was playing a small tournament, it was called the Magnolia Classic, which was opposite the Masters, and he always, he, he reminded me of that, he said, you know, he was, he was at the airport at, in Atlanta, and he saw a couple of the guys, you know, going on the plane to Augusta, and he's going to somewhere, I don't know, Mississippi or somewhere, wherever it was, I have no idea. 
but it was a very small tournament. And he finished second there, I remember. You know, he, I think he shot, if I remember, memory serves me correctly, he shot 467s. And it was, a, it was the thought, the, the final thought I gave Nick, you know, which I still use today, was I said, you know what? I said, you're swinging really, really well. When you, I mean, the ball flight was good, the control was good, he was able to hit shape shots, you know, he, had, he lost all that spittiness on his drivers. And I said, you know, one thing I want you to do, I want you to, when you set up to it, I want you to totally soften your arms. I said, because you know, one of the things you're trying to do is that you're trying. Okay, it's like you've got to let this thing happen now. We, we've worked at this for a couple of years now. Yeah. Okay, a lot of it's been implemented, and you've just got to let this thing take its course. And I say the softer your arms are, and it's, it's true today. I mean, you see players when they're working on things, instinctively their grip pressure gets tight, their arms get totally, tight. Yeah. It's like they just can't move. And it was really the defining sort of thought, really. And from there on, I mean, he went, I mean, he, I think he won the Spanish memory is going back a lot of years now, mm -hmm. about 30 years almost now, or 30 years, yeah, exactly. And so, and then obviously Muirfield happened. That's yeah. when he, you know, he, he hit, uh, you know, he made 18 straight pars in the last round to pit Paul Azinger, and it was that really the start where, you know, you could see the confidence started to ooze, yeah. and uh, it was, uh, I mean, it was the start of a really, really good period where he was pretty much favorite to win. I mean, you, you had, during that period of, say, seven, eight years, you know, you had Greg Norman was number one, Nick Price was number one, but you know, Nick was always, Nick Falder was always sort of looked upon as like the favourite, although, you know, he, he won six majors and probably should have won three or four more, mm -hmm. especially probably a couple of US Opens, but, uh, you know, having said that, I mean, he was a very dominant player for, and uh, mm -hmm. it, it was looked upon as, okay, hey, well, here's the model relationship player coach mm -hmm. and and what people didn't realize is that, you know, after those first couple of years, after that, it was, it was purely coaching. It wasn't teaching. Yeah. You know, yeah. We, we taught the stuff early, yeah. okay? And that's what you have to realize. If, if you've got to keep teaching, it's like your mind is going to be inundated with stuff. Yeah. Coaching is pretty much reminding a player and maybe give them a different feel. It's not like, you know, I mean, if, 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 you're, if you're being taught every year, I mean, the thing you worked on the first year probably wasn't very good, yeah. you know? So if you've got to keep changing it. Mm -hmm. And so you're refining and you're polishing, you're getting it to a point where it becomes instinctive and you work on little drills. And, and we have to remember, you know, you've got not only, I mean, you've got other parts of the game you've got to focus on, you know, the short game and the padding and everything else. So you can't just put 99% of your effort just into hitting it purely. I mean, there have been players like that through the years who've never, have never made it in yeah. any form or shape because, you know, they put so much emphasis just on ball striking. I, yeah. think, I think it's interesting as well. You mentioned, obviously, Muirfield. The speech, obviously, was fantastic at the end, but he did. <laughs> but the, I think the fact he had 18 pars in the last round, it, it sort of very much aligned itself with precision and, and almost the hallmark of his game. And maybe You're too young to remember that, yeah, no, Of course, well before. But <laughs> He's older than he looks, David. He's a lot older than he looks. Looked at videos, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> but, but, you know, you, you see how a lot of people from that would get, well, okay, Faldo, Ledbet, it's about precision, it's about planning and strategy mm. and, and you're really sort of churning it out that way. And yes. you, you, then that seems to be, uh, it, it's rare that you see 18 pars in yeah. the round, obviously. Right. Yeah, match. well he was, he was a technician. And, but the thing people don't realise is that, you know, I was always, because of working with Nick, uh, I was always termed a very technical teacher. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I'm actually far from it. I'm very much an instinctive, in, intuitional type teacher. And so, and, and Nick himself, I mean, look, he, he was a technician. He loved his mechanics, but he'd, he'd use that in order to 
foster the feel of yeah. what he was mm. trying to do. He was always sort of trying to work the ball, and you know, you hear him, he was going, you know, noises, and mm. he was very, he was very visual, he was kinesthetic, he was auditory. I, I never a, ever actually figured out which, which was his strong yeah. sensory yeah, system, yeah. Sure he had them all going, you know. And so he was very much a field player. So even though it looked like it was very mechanical, you know, when you write a book and, mm. you know, I wrote my yeah. first book back in 1989 called The Golf Swing and it was like, which was modeled after Ben Hogan's book, actually, The Five Fundamental, mm, yeah. the way it was laid I out. still got that at home. And, and uh, well, uh, you bought the copy. I, I bought I, that I, copy, I knew, yeah. I knew somebody did. <laughs> yeah, it was him. <laughs> it was him. Uh, and so, but I, I've always tried in my, in my coaching, teaching to be, and as years have gone by, I think I've got better at it personally. That you know, you, you you accrue as much information as you can in order to teach as simply as possible. If you can, if you can get the message over in a simple way, mm. so much the better. Because I say a player doesn't need to be crammed full of stuff. Okay? No. I mean, you, you know, the over analytical type, or you know, the paralysis or analysis, as John Jacobs used to term it. Uh, it's not good, and so because you can, you can. You can take out the naturalness out of a player, and so if you've got a young player who's a pretty natural player, I mean, yeah, you, you sharpen up and tidy up their technique, but you want to do it in a way that they can get out and play and not sort of overcomplicate it. Because you know, golf is a game where we know with a stationary ball, yeah. we've got a lot of time to think about things. And uh, with tennis, you you know, for instance, or cricket, you're reacting. You know, it's like you maybe you work on your forward defensive in cricket, but. You know, when, it, when it's being flown, you know, bowled at you at 90 miles an hour, yeah, you better let your instincts take yeah. over. You know? <laughs> yeah. So you haven't got time to think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so it's, it's been interesting. And, uh, you know, I've obviously written lots of books and done lots of videos, which is fun. And, uh, you know, probably only 25% of the people that either watch or read will get exactly what I mean. It's, mm. There's nothing better than actually putting your hands on something. So, okay, this is the feeling I want. Yeah, okay, yeah, get, yeah, yeah. okay and that's what people miss. I mean, you can get a lot from YouTube if you interpret it correctly, yeah. but it's all sort of audio and it's all visual. Of course it is, yeah. But, you know, the kinesthetic stuff, you know, we, I mean, I've been a big believer in working with drills and little exercises mm, to the feel. foster the feel. Because mm -hmm. it's all about learning the feel for what you want to do in order to incorporate it. We're all different. We all think differently. We all sense different things. But once you've got a feel for what you're trying to do yeah, from yeah. A, a mechanical standpoint, because, I mean, I'm sure, listen, with what you've guys done the last, you know, two or three years, I mean... How, I mean, if you had to take all those mechanics into mm -hmm. account, I mean, you'd go crazy, right? Yeah, I mean, sure. yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, so, and, you know, that's why it's always sometimes hard for teachers to go out and play because their heads are so full of, oh, mm. here we go, you know, just forget everything, let's go and play. Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a fascinating industry. I mean, look, I've been around a long time and uh, I remember years ago people say, hey, you better make hay while the sun shines because you only flavor the month mm. for a short period of time. And that's true to a point. I mean, you know, Young teachers come, young teachers go. Um, but I've been around a long while. You know, we have 34 academies around the world. I've worked with players that won 21 majors and won, I don't know, a couple of hundred golf tournaments probably around the world. And so, and, and all sorts of players too. It's not, and you know, hey, I've, so, yeah. I've lost a few yeah. and gained a few. It's all and part it's of it, isn't it? It's all part, it's of, part of the business, of it, yeah. you know? So, you know, I'm sort of like the rhinoceros. I'm thick skinned and I charge a lot. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned about feel and, and, and as you said you've worked with loads of tremendous golfers you know your Greg Normans your Ernie Elses but we actually were at a, a conference and we heard you t uh, tell a little story about how you worked with Seve mm. Coventry where we were at Coventry and, and, and for us that was just brilliant so I mean can you just go through that again about yeah. you know, your relationship yeah. with Seve and especially how maybe 
ended as well, which was fairly quickly, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, that was very interesting. I mean, you know, I was. Uh, I used to do quite a bit of work in Japan. I used to go to three or four times a year for for Dunlop, and Sevi was a Dunlop player back in the day. So this was like nineteen. I think it was 1991, I think, 91 or 92, 91, I think. Anyway, so I'm over in Japan at a tournament called the Dunlop Open, which is just north of Tokyo. And so Sevi was over there, I guess he was contracted to play there. And so, I mean, I knew Sevi just through you know, being around and what have you. And obviously, I mean, it's sort of, you know, you, you look at, he's one of those players you sort of idolize and mm -hmm. think, well, you know, what's, you know, I mean, different sort of player to Nick Faldo, who was yeah. sort of more the technician. Sevi is sort of the flamboyant sort of, hit the shot, see the shot, feel the shot, and so on, you know, and unbelievable from 100 yards and in, so, you know, I mean, he was, I mean, and, and he and Nick were, sort of, you know, pretty big rivals back yeah. in the day. I mean, I think as people get older, they mature a bit, and they mm. sort of, you know, probably like Jack Nicklaus and Tom Watson, you know, yeah. I mean, in the back in the day when you're rivals, it's, it's hard in golf to be sort of bosom buddies. Mm. But, uh, so I was there, and he said, hey, listen, uh, would you mind looking at me this week? So I said, yeah, sure, no problem, no problem. So you know, I asked Dunlop because I was there to work with some Japanese players. Oh, yeah, sure, sure, you know, because he's a Dunlop player. So anyway, um, so and I take note of people's golf games. And, you know, and obviously at that stage he was having trouble and hitting, keeping the ball in play and he was having some back issues even back in the day. So I said, okay, Sevi, let me give you my opinion, okay? You can listen and if you like it, fine. If you don't, that's okay. And I said, look, I, I look at your game. And you've always been a bit of a wild driver, but you know, you you were always, were always a long hitter. I mean, you look at some of those old Masters mm -hmm. films, and you know he was using the old persimmon driver, and he'd whack it out there, three hundred plus. So he was always a solid ball strike. Yeah. But I think when he when his back started to hurt, he he lost the ability to create the coil and the torque. So it became very armsy, very narrow, and you know it was always a glancing blow. So I mean. You know, he became shorter and more crooked, which is not a good combination, no. as you know. And he still had his fabulous short game. I mean, because we know as you get closer to the green, dynamics don't play as big a role. I mean, the longer the, the, longer the shot, more yeah. dynamics have to play a role in how you swing the club. So if your back, which is a major component of this whole golf swing, if it's not working in a functional fashion, you know, well, you know, you're going to have some issues. So I said, listen, I said, to my mind, if you can find a way to sort of hit fairways, okay, get the ball in play, not having to chip out and hit these, you know, wonderful shots around through under trees and what have you. I said, you know, if you hit more fairways, okay, I mean, you're still a good enough iron player and you've got to, you're, you're, you're still the best from 100 yards and in. I said, you've got to just change the way you think a little bit, you know, so I, mean, I don't know if anybody ever sat down and told him that because nobody really told CV what to do. What to do. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. He told them what to do. Yeah. So I was just being honest and I, he said, okay, what do you think I should do? So I said, okay, this is, this is what I think you should do. And I, because I'd always, I always sort of picture, okay, what would I do with this player? What would I do with that player? So already I had a preconceived <laughs> idea what, what I would do if I ever had a chance of working with Seve. So I said, okay, number one, okay, I said, your posture, I mean, you're really bent over, you've got this. I mean, if you look at Seve, he was so twisted, his back was so twisted. If you put his arms out in front of him, honestly, his, his right hand was probably four or five inches longer than his left. He was that way. And so you would set up to it here and he'd have this huge, huge, huge turn, which he always had when he was young. But... Now he had a huge turn without any coil. There's no point in having a big turn if you don't coil. What's the point? It's like it's just you know, all you're adding is the margin for error. Yeah. The club's just going back further, and then as it's coming down, you know, it's getting narrower, and he's like, you know, just with the, obviously with the driver, you've got to have a flat spot at the bottom mm -hmm. of your swing. So I said, okay, my idea is this, okay, that we, we change your posture, 
we shorten the swing and we add more width to your swing. He says, okay, well, how do I do that? I said, okay, so we got him standing in a, in a much different fashion. He was standing taller, had far less angle. Uh, we got him, I, I got him to a point where when he, when he swung it back, I, I would actually get behind him. So I, I'd be behind him and I, as he swung back, as he got to the top, I'd actually push the butt end of the club towards the target. So it would almost like it would feel like he was wider. So not only did it help with his width on his backswing, but it helped his width that he started down. And so I'd just push and I'd push and I'd push. And so was, I use a lot of this. We use, a, um, um, it's called PNF, proprioceptive neuromuscular facilitation. It's what they use in, uh, in rehab. Okay, so you do the opposite of what yeah. somebody's trying to do. So I'm actually trying to make it narrow and he's yeah. trying to get me wide. Yeah. Okay. And so, it, and you know, he adapted because he's such a, you know, such a field player. And he says, okay. And it was amazing. Literally, in one shot, okay, it's like the ball came out, I mean, different trajectory, actually moved left to right. Because I said, you've got to get rid of this big old shape that you're trying to hit. And it moved left to right. And it was, and he said, wow. And so, anyway, we worked the whole week. And just, I, that's, that's what I was going to do. I said, hey, you know, get your posture right. We'll get this shorter, get it wider, so you get more on top of the ball instead of this big old, I said, it's going to help your back. He said, which, you know, obviously mm-hmm. was, you know, he, he, he liked that thought. And then, so anyway, so he finished third. He then goes the next week, which was, uh, what was that? Chinichi Crowns, I think, was a, was a big tournament in Japan. He finished second. Then he went to Spain and he finished first. He went three, two, one. So it's like, whoa, you know. So <laughs> and nobody really knew because we were in Japan doing it. Yeah. So there wasn't the press and, you know, it wasn't, you know iPhones and you know social media. So who who the heck knew about, yeah. apart from me and you know his Chinese you know minder there. You know what <laughs> Japanese minder? I should say not Chinese. Sound like Sandy Lyle when, when he thanked the Chinese for putting on the tournament at uh, Suntory. Oh. <laughs> thanked the Chinese. Uh, <laughs> so like, I feel like Sandy. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> cute moment. But anyway, so and then he. Uh, I mean that year, he he won. Uh, he won. Then he actually. I think, did he win the PGA? I think he, I forget, yeah. Uh, but he, he, he won match play anyway, yeah. for sure. Anyway, had a, had a, he, won, he, Great was, he was leader order of merit. I think it was 91, 92. I always forget which year it was. Anyway, so he tells me, he says, listen, uh, thanks so much. This is, this is amazing, you know. And, you know, people were sort of writing about him. Oh, Sebi's back and what have you. And I didn't get that much publicity because I was a little conscious of, because, you know, because mm. at the time, you know, working with Nick and what have you, it was like, you know, I didn't want to make it a big deal. Yeah. I, okay, well, I've just been giving him a couple of tips, you know, and so the Nick would sort of look at me, yeah, mm. okay, fine. Well, you know, it's like so. But um, uh, anyway, so he said he's going back to Pedrena and he wanted to come out and see me early the following year before he started off his American uh, uh, section of his of his tournament play, and so before he started off on the U.S. tour, and he was having a bit of an argy bargy, I think, with the tour at the time. It was something to do with I don't know, Dean Beeman and the, how many tournaments he played, and so he didn't actually get to play in the Players' Championship. So he actually came and stayed with us. We were living at Lake Nona, and he stayed at the club, and he was there for a week, and we worked on it, and it was man, it was like we just did the same things because uh, I, I knew if, if he just sticks to the same thing, like, don't make it too technical, yeah, make yeah. it simple. And so, same thing. I mean, he was hit, actually hitting everything sort of with his tee shots, a little left to right, a little left to right, because it's like he, he just got so much more width. And mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was hitting it, you know, he was hitting it decent distance. He wasn't hitting as far as he used to, but he was hitting it, whatever, 275, 280, which back in the day was that. That's plenty. Yeah, so long. Yeah, so, and, um, <coughs> and I said, let's just stick to this. Let's just stick to this. Anyway, so he, he then goes up to New Orleans, which was the week before Augusta, finished 10th. Okay, so it was a good, uh, it was a good warm-up, and Billy Foster was caddying for him, and so 
we, uh, we go to, next week's Augusta. So I see him on the Monday, and Billy says, he's like, I've got money on him this way. I mean, he's like, he's just striping. He's got so much control over the ball. I mean, watch him on the range. He's just, he's a little, little baby fades, you know, and it's like, good. So anyway, so <laughs> it was like uh, the next day, so this is Tuesday, I go, I go on the range and I'm walking, I don't know what I was going to see first, I, said, I told Stevie I'd see him, you know, when he was warming up. Anyway, so I go on the range and I was going to see somebody, I don't know, Nick or somebody, and Billy's walking over and he's like, shaking his head going, <sighs> he's cursing, he says, what, what's up? He says, this is a nightmare. I said, what? He said, well, look. So I looked over at Stevie and sure enough, because, you know, when we worked with him and his swing got compact, it got short, I'm looking over there and it's like, what's he doing? It's like <laughs> he's got this huge turn, high hands, and it's like, oh, my goodness. I said, what, what is he doing? He said, oh, well, his brother came over last night. Okay, so his, he and his family were very tight. I mean, you know, you've got to realize they grew up together, and, I mean, he was, you know, they were, I mean, they, they were very close-knit family. And apparently, this, I think, uh, that was Manuel. And Manuel had not seen Seve for the last year or so, because they live in different parts of Spain. He was living, uh, I think he was, I think Manuel was, was at La Manga, if I remember correctly. And apparently he looked at Seve and says, what are you doing? He said, you know, you can't swing like this. This is not your swing. You've got to get those hands high, you know. So I walked over to Seve, and as sure as, I mean, this is true as Bob, he, he, he did not even acknowledge I was there. No, I mean, we were like, yeah, pretty, I mm-hmm. mean, considering mm-hmm. we're sort of player coach, and it's like, mm-hmm. you know, we were... Yeah, just around a little bit with one another, and I mean, he's quite funny, really steady. Uh, and so, not even look up at me. It was like I wasn't even there. Like, oh dear, I could see, uh, see the bobs, you know, this brother would look over me, and I'd say, okay, whatever. And so, anyway, cut a long story short, I mean, he shot like 78, 77, missed the cut. And, uh, you know, I thought, well, this is, this is a weird, this is a weird situation, but anyway, so, Back in Japan, okay, it's, a, it's, a, it's like an anniversary, so that's <laughs> one year later, and Sevi's playing, and I'm over there. So anyway, he comes up to me and says, David, he says, listen, I want to thank you for last year, and I know, you know, I, I play well, but that is way too mechanical for me. I'm a field player. I can't play like that. Mm. I said, okay, Sevi, that's, you know, your choice. That's fine. You know, hey, it, was, it was fun working yeah. with you. And, and that's the way it ended. And so... He did one. He went, He won one tournament subsequent to that. He worked with <coughs> Mac O'Grady for a while. When you know he went out in the desert uh, with uh, with Mac and cut his hair off and put it in a box and buried it. To get, rid of the, get rid of the evil the spirits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, it was just. It was so. It was sad, really, because you know, it was really simple. Yeah. He played great, yeah. but you know, blood's thicker than water, Horses, I guess. Yeah. You know, and it was like really. I mean, he never played. I mean, he didn't have a. That, that was his last last great great year you yeah. know and, and he still had it in him he just had to make those uh, adaptions if you will and because you know hey for whatever reason ch- in injuries i mean ben hogan made those changes when he, mm. after his accident yeah and you know he played better yeah. and so you know and Sevi was still a young guy he was only 34 35 it wasn't like he was over the hill and mm. uh, so that was really you know one regret that we never sort of continued on and it was just amazing like within a 12 hours, you yeah. know, everything completely changed. So that was my, my Sebi story. Yeah. So, uh, but, Not, you know, nice to have that though, isn't it? It's nice to be able to have <coughs> a little bit of chance to work with somebody. Yeah, like I mean, look, just the opportunity of working with mm. somebody like him. Exactly. I mean, you know, I mean, just, I just was mesmerized standing watching him with his short game and, you know, learning stuff about bunker shots. And I mean, it was just, uh, you know, 
you know, I always remember my, my, my eldest son, who was about maybe 13 at the time, and uh, he said, uh, you know, he said, oh, are you any good? He said, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty good. He said, okay, let's see, we, we were in the bunk. We had a bunk and a little green set up in the garden, you know, and he says, okay, so... And he hold the first two, I remember. <laughs> the first two, he's looking at him, oh, you're pretty good. <laughs> Not better than me, but yeah, you're pretty yeah. good. <laughs> you stop after two. <laughs> Brilliant. So funny, funny story. So, I mean, there's, certain, there's been certain people in, in our career, David, that have been very influential, including yourself. Who would you say has had the biggest influence in your career to, to date? Yeah, it's a good question because I've had a lot of people. I mean, look, I've been an avid reader. I mean, you know, it, it's, it's um, you know, through the years of all the different instruction. I mean, one of my favorite books, is if, if you ever get a chance, it's really, I mean, it's, I'm sure it's out in reprint, uh, was Percy Boomer on Learning Golf. I mean, it's a fantastic little book. I mean, Percy Boomer, uh, he was, his brother, he and his brother Aubrey, uh, they, they pretty much spent a lot of time in France. And they, I think they both won, I don't know, French Open, Dutch Open back in the day. But Percy Boomer was, it was very, it's, it's a fantastic book. It really is. It's just all about how the body works, how the clubs work. It was a very modern book mm. in a sort of a, in, in ancient text, shall we say. Uh, so, you know, a lot of people had influence. I said Phil Ritson, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, I mean, John Jacobs. I mean, and more than anything else, probably all the, all the players that I've worked with. Yeah. Because the feedback you get when you work with a Nick Price, who's a complete and utter student of the game. So if he didn't like something, he said, no, nah, I don't think that. And we talk about, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. And so, you know, you learn so much working with all different types of players that, that it actually helps you indirectly working with other players, does, you yeah. know, and so, you know, I'm being a you know, semi-decent player back in the day, so it helped me into picture, you know, I mean, missing cuts, I can understand how frustrating it is, no, <laughs> having gone through it a number of times, but, it, you know, not that I've had a huge number of tournaments, but I've had enough to know what the, what the game's all about, and uh, so it, it's, you know, I, I would say I was not one particular person, I mean, that has sort of Overly it's call, that me. It's a sort of a, a group, yeah, yeah. you know, and you want to thank everybody that's really had any sort of uh, involvement. Uh, but uh, I mean, there's, uh, uh, say, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, you read old books like Seymour Dunn, and I mean, people have said, who the heck was that? You know, but back in the day, these are, these were sort of well-known mm. teachers, mm. and I mean, because one of my hobbies is actually collecting old instructional books. I've got books dating back you know, to the 19th century, you know, on wow. instruction essentially, you know, and how. Yeah, and we're still trying to figure out how to get this little damn ball in the hole yeah. today. You know? <laughs> it's a slightly different, slightly different ball to what it was back then. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because obviously, you, you know, you're, I think we always say as golf coaches, we're always learning. And you're always looking mm. for a better way. And obviously, the, the, the way that we met really was through the A-swing. You know? So that was mm. the alternative swing. That is something that you've obviously been looking at. And you know, it yeah. obviously came to light a couple of years ago, yeah. like 18 months ago, I would say. But it was something you've been working out a lot. And what, what, what made you do this? <laughs> well, it was a bit of a risk because people say, well, what's he thinking? You know, what's he had an epiphany? Woke up one morning and <laughs> said, okay, here's a new swing now. No, you know, the interesting thing, the A swing, to be very candid, is a commercial name. Okay, I mean, we, yeah. we want, I mean you've got to have something different. Otherwise, people yeah. are going to say, oh, well, same old, same old, just same present, different mm -hmm. wrapping. And to some extent, it is. But it's, uh, it's a way... Really, I mean, I've always, to some extent, taught the A, the A swing, in my opinion. Okay, so when I look at a golf swing, I always break it down into three. Okay, the way you set up to the ball, the way your body moves, and the way the club swings. Okay, so those three areas. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the way the club swings obviously includes the club, your hands, your wrist, your arms. And how those complement one another. And, you know, the, the, the interesting thing is that it's, 
the, the setup, once you've got it, you've got it. Okay, it's just discipline. The pivot motion is actually a, quite an easy movement to develop. And I, I don't think there's, a lot of, there's not really a lot of disagreement with the top teachers how the body actually moves. In fact, if you look at players, I mean, there are some slight differences. Some players, like Dustin Johnson, straightens the right leg a little bit more. And there might be a, sl- a difference in how much rotation there is. But the actual movement, the way you coil, yeah. the way you unwind, and the way you release, you know, everybody's in reasonable agreement what should happen there. But the way the club swings, I mean, people are in total disagreement. And so the interesting thing is you see players uh, who really struggle. You know, they work hard on what the club is doing. And is, is the body the problem or is the club the problem? So everything in golf is a cause and effect for sure. So I'm really much a body teacher. So everything we're doing is to get the body to work better. And so that the ace swing for many people is a very efficient way of doing it. And so I've got some good players doing it. I mean, we had Lydia Ko doing it, who... I'm sad to say that, you know, that her parents didn't particularly like the look of it, okay, mm-hmm. which who cares about the look if it's mm-hmm. functional. And you look at her career, the first three years, there's no way that anybody's played better in the history no. of the game yeah. than Lydia Ko. But, uh, you know, the fact is, you know, you're, you're teaching more than one person, unfortunately, mm, at times. Yeah. So it's, I won't say any more than that. But the fact is that it's a very efficient way because for most players, let's face it, golf's difficult because we're swinging on an inclined plane. We're not swinging on a level baseball or tennis uh, plane, shall we say. So when you've got a ball down there and you're up here, getting that club in the right position coming down is not easy. Good players, because of their dynamics, do it fairly yeah. well. Uh, maybe not as efficiently and uh, as, as they could. But I, So it's not, not that I get everybody to swing it as steep as possible and to shallow it as much as possible, but for the average player, I mean, if you look if you look at a Jim Furyk, you look mm-hmm. at a Ryan Moore, those, those players are actually great models for amateur mm-hmm. golfers. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Because, I mean, the club, you know, you get the club up here, just through gravity, the club falls on the right plane. I mean, most amateurs, they're here and they're here. And so yeah. you're always trying to correct sort of this outside-in steep path. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a, a steep angle of attack. So the thing is, it's, I've always believed, and if you look at players, whether you look at Nick Faldo, you look at Nick Price, um, I've always believed in a slightly steeper backswing and a shallow downswing. So all we did was sort of exaggerate yeah. that a little bit. And we, we got to a point where, hey, you know, you coil up, the club is in front of you. And I say, one of my model swings through the years, really, from a standpoint of somebody who was just an unbelievably consistent ball striker, was Calvin Pete. Now, if you look at Calvin mm-hmm. Pete, he was, a, he was a black golfer who grew up under, you know, difficult conditions. Only started golf when he was in his early 20s and had a bit of a withered left arm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But if... if that guy, I mean, I remember watching him, and some of the players, whether it be Dennis Watson or Nick Price, I mean, they played with him and said, this guy, I mean, he never missed a fairway apart from wanting to go to the toilet occasionally. You know, I mean, <laughs> if it, if, you know, they could lay, you could lay the irrigation pipes out on the way he hit the ball. It was, like, incredible. And if you look at his swing, and you can still see some of his old swings on YouTube, it's like the club went up, and never got, the club never got behind his hands, and as he moved his body, the club would shallow. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, coming down, I mean, sure, it looked a little strange going back, but yeah. coming down, my goodness me. I mean, he was, he was in perfect position through impact. I mean, it looked like Ben Hogan through impact. He wasn't the most powerful of individuals, but so you look at swings and say, how, how do you get the average golfer to get the club on the right plane? How do you get them swinging more from the inside? Because you, you get them to shallow the plane, they're going to be swinging more from into yeah. out. It's as simple as that. And so, so it, it was looked at, I looked at it as a, really for the masses, although I've had some players, including the model in the book, Ryan Blom, who swore by it because, you know, I, the, one of the big words that I use is synchronization, how you sync up the, the arms with your body. And most players, you know, you see a lot of players, I mean, even good players, they, 
they turn early, their arms go, their body goes, your arms can't catch up. Mm. Or with, with amateurs, they get the club to the top without a turn and the arms come down. So there's a distinct lack of synchronization between <coughs> the arms and the body. Yeah. And so this, this swing, it could have been called the sink swing. It could have been called, you know, the whatever. It could have been called a number of things. So we, we called it the A swing. And I say it's, it's called a little... Uh, controversy here and there, but that's okay. I mean, it's it's, it's like it's but very it's, much a talking point, isn't it? It's a talking point, and it's like as I say, it's not it's not a radical departure. Mm. It, you know, people think it is, and yeah. the exaggerated version. Mm. I always say, look, even though a lot of people they're thinking they're actually getting really really steep going back, most people can't get there. No, okay, it's like it's like a curry ordering a curry. Do you know you could have a mild curry, a, you know, or a vindaloo. Okay, so this is the vindaloo version. Most people are in the mild version. You know, but anytime I think if people can get the, pl- the club standing up on its end and then get it to shallow, and it sort of adds motion to the swing, because you've got to realize a lot of amateurs they don't have the athletic ability to create the dynamics to do that. Mm-hmm. So by having the club up here and just almost just making a little movement, the club falls naturally into a plane. So without having to have the dynamics, it allows them to create this sort of snap if you will and yeah. create more energy and that's what it's all about you know so it's, so it's been interesting I mean and it's uh, it was a bit of a departure a lot of people say hey are you going to ruin your reputation by this I said no I don't think so because I mean all we're trying to do essentially I mean is, is to help people to play better and, and you know you don't tar everybody with the same brush no. that's no. what I've said earlier I mean it's the best thing in the world to, when you're teaching and coaching is sort of get your hands on somebody yes, give them a feel for what they're trying to do yeah. and to me if they're in sync even if they swung it around here. I mean, you know, if you go back in the day, you know, to a, to a Nancy Lopez or Raymond Floyd, I mean, they did the exact opposite. They were here, they were so flat here, worked it up, and even, you know, it was so far inside and behind them that when they came down, it actually looked like it was pretty good. Yeah, so it's like they, they, yeah. they got a perfect <laughs> position by getting there uh, in a, yeah. from a completely different position. So that's, it's interesting from that standpoint. And I think the, the viewers are, you know, who, sorry, the viewers, the listeners, um, I think a lot of people would think that that's all you teach. And I think, like you say, we always talk about, you know, you feed what you need. So if you mm. felt that somebody would need a slight, slightly steeper backswing, that, that's how you'd approach that situation, yeah. I, I'm yeah, guessing. You just, whatever they need, you'd, mm. you'd sort of put it in there. That's, that's what, what, what it's all about. You know, as I say, it's not, look, one methodology doesn't suit everybody, that's mm. for sure. And uh, we know that, uh, look, I mean, you only have to look, walk down a, a, a tee. Yeah, yeah, any professional tournament, look at all the different swings. Yeah. I mean, they're not as different as they used to be. There's not a, not so many individualistic swings. You know, the, the Miller Barbers of the day or the Eamon Darcy's, you know, yeah. you don't see too many of those these days. You know, people are coached pretty much from a younger age. Mm. So, but there are still some individual movements. You can still, you know, you know from a distance who's that swing is, whether yeah. through the speed, the yeah. rhythm, the certain positions they get into or whatever. But... Uh, you know, it, it is interesting how I think people try to pigeonhole everything now. It's about, hey, you all do this and you all do that. And it's not, it's not that all, at all. Uh, any, any coach that's worth his salt or her salt, I mean, will teach, uh, tailor instruction to the, the individual. Yeah. And what, what, do they, what do they need in order for them to sort of reach their potential? And that's the thing. I mean, so, you know, I never charge in without actually finding out about uh, what the player's all about, where they've come from. And I think some of the problem with these pundits on TV these days, everybody's an expert now. Yeah. You know, they, mm-hmm. they don't they, know the history, they ha- do they? They don't do, they don't do enough uh, research yeah, and exactly. find out, okay, and what, where, where's this person come from? What's the history here? Yeah. You know, somebody like, a, when I got criticised out the yin-yang, you know, when we started working with Lydia Ko, well, what are you doing there? Well, I mean, this girl, 
I mean, she's not the greatest athlete, okay, doesn't have the greatest amount of power, was hitting it left to right. I said, okay, well, in my opinion, this girl needs to learn to draw the ball. Mm -hmm. So the A swing for her was a perfect way of being able to get her to draw the ball and move it right to left. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, but people don't look at that. So, well, just, uh, it doesn't look right. Well, who cares? I mean, it's like, you know, it's, the fact is it's functional and it's efficient and it's, it's doing the job. And, yeah. uh, you know, and if people disregarded the backswing, in many cases, you just look at what's ca happening coming down and say, yeah. man, that looks great. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's all, it's all perception. Of course it is. Yeah. So, a um, couple more questions. Your proudest moment as a golf coach? There's probably been a lot. Is there anything that really sort of stands, to, stands out to yourself as your proudest moment? I suppose my proudest moment, I mean, there've been, look, I've had some, a lot of great times and experiences, but I suppose my greatest moment, just because of the work that we put in, was with uh, Sir Nick, which he wasn't back then, uh, but uh, was when finally it all, all the work came to fruition. And so when he won at Muir for the 1987, I mean, that was a really, really, satisfying moment mm. and uh, I suppose that was probably closely followed by you know when Nick Price won at Turnbury remember when remember when he held a sort of 70 foot yeah, across the green on yeah. Yeah, yeah 16 there and uh, you know giving it the giving it the jump you know yeah, and, yeah. Uh, running after it, it yeah was, right it? and so uh, um, so that was I mean because you know Nick always wanted to win an open and uh, you know always you know he'd always had the sort of the the skill level and the you know talent to win a major and he, you know he won well he won three in the end but you know, two PGAs but uh, uh, so but I think probably uh, I think Nick Faldo's uh, win at uh, because it just a culminated in all the hard work that we put in both put in I mean, you know I mean more credit to him than to me certainly but uh, but the work that we put in together and I mean we just had a plan and we just you know we didn't we we didn't move off yeah. that plan at all. We just, everything was like geared towards, okay, this is the goal. This is what we yeah. want to do. And it just, you know, it was a plan that sort of uh, came right in the end. Yeah, yeah. When well, yeah. it's that intense, well, it obviously was intense, wasn't it? Mm. For, for that to actually pay off, the way it paid off as well with six majors is pretty, pretty fast. Yeah, I mean, as I say, as he said, he wouldn't probably do the same thing today. And probably I certainly wouldn't do the no. same thing today, you know, but we did it. And, uh, you know, to some extent sort of created some sort of history. And uh, it's nice to say, I mean, it's very nice when you know, pros come to me and said, hey, you know all that work you did with Nick Faldo and uh, you know, it's really helped us as a profession and mm. because you know, teachers, I don't think, got their, you know, they weren't valued to the same extent mm. maybe that they should have been and they, they're starting to now, which is yeah. great. You know? Totally agree. So yeah, we've got a couple of fun questions. To, well, you've always put some of these in here. So you've obviously given thousands of golf lessons. What's the strangest or the funniest golf lesson you've ever been involved in? Is there a moment when you've gone, I, I really can't stop laughing here, or I need to laugh now? You can't mention Rito Bodmer. <laughs> oh, no, yeah. Because I know Rito, you met him a couple of weeks ago. Right, right. Let's <laughs> okay. uh, see. Um, probably, actually, I, I mentioned earlier I was going to get married at one stage in, in the UK, actually to a South African girl, and I actually gave her a lesson. I remember her bra snapped, and she was a, she was a dental assistant, and she was wearing white, and it was sort of embarrassing. <laughs> it was quite funny at the time, but uh, it wasn't to her. But uh, no. so that maybe I don't know if that. Was that an intentional move? <laughs> <laughs> Try this drill. Yeah, get that. Get, get a little more whip there. That'll, 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 that'll snap load your, you know what? <laughs> Brilliant. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, you know, yeah, we've had some funny. We've had some funny moments where I remember <laughs> this lady. Actually, it was it was actually after the lesson. This lady. She came for a lesson with me and she, she parked her car uh, 
<laughs> she parked her car just next to the little pavilion we had there. So anyway, this lady, it, it, was, it wasn't funny at the time, but it was funny afterwards. Mm -hmm. we, we laughed back. But this lady, um, she, she, she left, she was walking away from me, and she stepped back and put a foot in a bucket of balls. You know, the bucket was sort of almost the same size as a foot, and it was, she was on a slight downslope, right? So she had this bucket on there, and it was trying to shake this bucket off, and needless to say, she was, it went back down the hill like a, you know, like a snowboarder, you know, sort of going down. So she slid back down there, and she was so embarrassed that she had this bucket stuck on her foot, you know, so we had to go and sort of wedge it off. And she was so ruffled that she didn't realise that sort of one of my assistants had stuck her clubs leaning against the back of her car because it was locked. So she, she then proceeds to sort of reverse, oh. she reverses out over her clubs, feel like she's obviously gone over a speed bump or something, then goes forward. It must have gone over these clubs about eight <laughs> times. And her clubs were mangled, and not only did she have it. So, you know, we're standing there looking at this, you know, with everyone on the tee, you know. So, yeah, we've had some funny moments, oh. you know. I mean, I got a, I got a belly dancer to come on the tee for one of my assistants, that was his birthday, you know, and sort of give it the old cha-cha-cha <laughs> stuff. Uh, what else? I mean, we used to have a lot of fun sort of with, yeah, I mean, with Nick Price, I remember we, he flew in for a lesson here one time in his helicopter and we, uh, we sort of got the local constabulary here to come in and say, listen, sir, sorry, uh, you flew in here way too low. We're going to have to confiscate your helicopter, mm -hmm. you know. So that was, you know, that was like that. So, I mean, that's the thing, you know, you're sort of, you know, he, 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 he's always very aware of April, you know, April the 1st, Nick is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so at the time he was staying with me at, I remember, this is way back when he, he was a heavy, heavy sleeper, Nick. Probably had a few beers the night before, mind you, but so I've got this green Sharpie and painted moustache and <laughs> eyelashes and, Anyway, I was out in the tea and you heard the scream and you, you obviously saw himself in the mirror, you know. <laughs> so, Went down well. Yeah, so, uh, but um, <coughs> we've had some funny moments. Um, um, I'd have to recall some of them. You know, I always say I'm going to write a book on some of my experiences, which I probably should do at some stage before, I, I, should I, do, yeah. before yeah. I get too old. But, yeah, uh, yeah because there are, there are some funny things. I remember we had, actually had a guy, <laughs> a guy we had this film too. Um, he was on these air cushions. We use these little cushions there for balance, you mm -hmm. know. And he, he took this full swing there, and actually his back leg went out from under him. And he did a full, literally somersault, you know. All this was on film, really? you know. We had this, yeah. We had that, and uh, see, I was, and probably one of the funny things with my son when he was young, my eldest son, I was, we were, I was giving him a little lesson, and uh, no, that's our, our second, our, our youngest, James. You know, so he's, he swung the club back. And I'm sitting down and teeing a ball up there, and I, you know, he sort of whacked me on the knee, and I'm trying to, you know, <laughs> you feel like I want to give him a swat there, you know, it's like, it's like, and, so, and I'm dying on the floor, you know, how you get hit on the knee sometimes, and it's like, so, you know, so collapse you on the tee there, and uh, yeah, I did get knocked out actually one time. This lady, uh, this <laughs> this lady, she actually, um, she. She followed through, missed the ball, and then I, as I walked in there she, on her back, she actually swung it back again and, and caught me right here, and sort of I was out cold on the tee. Wow. So some people thought it's pretty funny, you know. It's probably <laughs> looked funnier. There's this lady there with a prost prostrate uh, golf pro sort of line behind, <laughs> you know. So it's like, oh, it's a few instances. Plenty there. I definitely yeah. think you should write that book. Yeah, <laughs> I'd like to see that, that book. Um, okay, so um, we always ask this one: ultimate golfer. So let, let's say the the people that you've coached over the years. The best driver, the best iron player, short game, putting, and maybe even mental as well. Mm, what would you okay. put those together? Uh, 
Best driver, probably Greg Norman, I would say, for sure. Yeah, uh, iron player, I would say, yeah, Nick Price, uh, for sure. Uh, he's just a different sound about... Um, but if you call, if you, you know, short game, I don't know if Seve counts through the year that I've worked with him, yeah, but yeah. Uh, uh, I would say, um, yeah, most natural golfer would be Ernie Els. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, let's see, from a... Um, a mental standpoint, actually, you know, I worked with, uh, you know, one of the world's leading players on the women's side was Seri Park. I worked with her for a number of years, and she was really strong mentally. I mean, this girl had a, had a I mean, probably part of her upbringing, but mm. she was mm. very, very strong. And so, you know, I would say... Um, Lydia as well, I would have thought. Lydia, from that standpoint, yeah. I mean, I would say, you know, she might have been the greatest putter. Okay? Yeah. I'd, okay. I'd, I would sort of classify in that era as, as the greatest putter. And then... Uh, um, it's a pretty good golfer, that is, Andy. It's all right, isn't it? It's a pretty There's no room for any others in yeah. there. Yeah. Baldo's got a squeeze in there, yeah. maybe I mean, somewhere. Yeah, obviously, they all have their, 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 um, their great aspects that are attached to each mm. player. Um, yeah, I suppose... Uh, Maybe Faldo is the overall golfer, I suppose. I suppose if you look at from a yeah, I mean we haven't mentioned Nick yet. I mean, but if you look at yeah, as a as a composite golfer who drove it well enough. I mean, he wasn't the longest, but I mean, uh, I suppose the, from a strategist standpoint, you know, he was very meticulous in the way he planned his rounds. He was a real strategist. I mean, if you look at you know how he and Fanny got together and planned around and looked at golf courses and dissected golf courses, yeah. even even dissected greens before they had all the the maps on greens. I mean they were doing that years ago, you know. So so you probably have to look at as from an overall complete player um, for that period of time. Uh, you'd have to look at Nick. I mean he was you know, because at that time he was he was he was a really good putter, great bunker player, had you know great touch around the greens and you know, really good iron player, um, you know Solid driver of the ball, so yeah, and you know, just a great thinker. So probably as an all-round player, mm-hmm. I mean, that's probably why he was number one for so mm-hmm. long, you know. So, uh, uh, but uh, yeah, you know, so something along those lines with those with those players, and uh, um, hard to beat that would be, I think. Yeah, yeah hard it's, it's hard to beat, you know. I mean, it's uh, yeah, my my philosophy over the years is, I don't know, hasn't really changed a whole lot. So, I mean, I don't work as with many of the top players as I used to. And I'm not out on tour as much. I've been there. But I, and I still feel sometimes the, the old way. I mean, I really admire coaches like Pete Cowan who go out there every mm-hmm. week. Man, mm-hmm. that's tough, though. Yeah. I mean, that's like, you, I mean, mm-hmm. you're a... You're, yeah. you're week in, week out, you're like a gypsy. I mean, it's, it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably worse than a tour player because, I mean, you're out there more than the tour player. Yeah. I mean, at least yeah. they, you know, weeks off, they sort of have weeks off here and there. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, all credit to Pete, he's a great coach. And uh, I, it's not my way there where I want to be out there every week with players. Mm-hmm. I, my way is that you give the player the information and they take it and they... They uh, own it, I suppose. They've got to own that, haven't they? Yeah. You know, I, so I think there's a, maybe a slightly different approach there. I mean, yeah. it's, I, mean I go out periodically to events. Not as many as I used to, but I still go out there and just to see what's going on and to, you know. But, uh, you know, I think most of the work should be done away from the golf course, personally. You know, mm-hmm. when they're out there, they're out there to play, not there to sort of work so much technically. Although, I say, if, if a player's game's really off, obviously you've got to yeah, maybe put a little work in. But mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's not the ideal place. I mean, because, you know, if they've just shot 77 the first round, I mean, they're not always in the best frame of mind to accept information either, you know. Yeah. So mm-hmm. it's... Uh, 
So it's a tricky one, a tricky one, but uh, you know, obviously he's been very successful doing it. So I mean, and probably the players that enjoy that sort of approach are the ones that sort of are, are geared exactly, towards, yeah. towards Pete, you know, where in, in some cases now, because I pretty much make it clear up front, listen, I can't be out there every week. So I, I need low maintenance players yeah. you know, rather than high maintenance <laughs> players. Because you know, yeah, so, it's just the time factor. I mean, look, I, I do a lot of things. We've got, you know, academies all over the world. I write, you know, books and articles, do radio shows, I've got corporate things I've got on, you know, you've got family and you know, you've got, mm. so you've got to enjoy your life. You, yeah. can't, you, know, you can't be a complete workaholic. No. As much as I love doing it, enjoy doing it, and I mean, it's not never been like a job to me, this. No. This has always been, I always say I've never worked a day in my life, because it's, it's mm. never felt like a job. It's always something enjoyable and, you know, it, it gets, you know, it gets overwhelming at times because there's so many things mm. and so many people pulling you in so many different directions and, yeah. you know, like on the way up here this morning, I had three radio things I had to do this morning, you know, and uh, sorry, two and one a writer. And so I wanted to know, hey, what, what do you think of Tiger? You know, that's like, because obviously that's the news now, that's yeah. uh, mm -hmm. right now, his, his comeback, which will be interesting to see. Mm -hmm. And uh, always good for the game when, you know, Tiger's in the mix. Definitely. So we'll see. Mm -hmm. Superb. So look, um, you know, obviously your time, we, we can talk for yes. days on all of this here. We've got some videos to do, which we're going to go and do in a moment. But we always like to finish the the podcast with a quote. I don't know if you've got a quote that you sort of live your life by or a famous quote that you like to use. And you had no idea we were going to ask you. No, so we could throw we, him we on the spot on, here. Put you on the spot here. Yeah. But is there, a, is there a quote, a saying that you use at all? You know what I, I use a lot? And I use it sort of pretty much from a, from a golf perspective. I have other things that I sort of try to follow in life. But as a coach and a teacher, and I've, it's always been my mantra, and uh, I learned it a long time ago, you know, we who dare to teach must never cease to learn. Mm, love it. So you, you never really shut your mind off because that's the thing. There's always getting new stuff coming out exactly. there. And as long as you sort of look at it in a way that you, from a broad perspective and you think, okay, that's really pretty cool. We can add that into what we do. So it makes what you do better. Yeah. Mm. And so that, that's a fascinating thing about this, this, this game. There's, you know, you think, oh, well, how could they think about it? what else could come up? Yeah, but there's yeah. always something. There's always there? something. There is, there is always, always something. something. It's, it's just there incredible, is. this game, you know, yeah. that... Uh, and you've got some very, very clever people around mm. it. And so as long as you don't sort of just, you know, take it all on board and, yes. you know, you don't sort of give up your principles and your thoughts, uh, you know, and say, okay, hey, this has got to be the way. I mean, there's no way, okay? There's many ways. But you can definitely improve yourself uh, in, in every aspect, you know? And so you, whether it be, you open your mind to a lot of different things. And so not only learning about the golf swing, but learning about life and learning about how you, know, you, you can control your mind and um, learning how you improve your marriage, learning how you, you know, there's lots of things you can do, you know, so that, that's my favourite one. We who dare to teach must never cease to learn. Brilliant. Brilliant. Very good. And uh, just to finish off, um, for the guys who are listening to this, where can they, if they want to come and see you for coaching or see some of your academies all over the world, where should they go to uh, find out Well, they more? can go to davidledbetter.com or Ledbetter. Uh, golf.com and uh, well they can go to a swing I mean yep. there's a lot of different avenues they can get to see us uh, so you know you just google David Ledbetter and there'll be uh, information on there about how, how you can get hold of us or you know our instructors who um, you know that's one of the things I'm very proud about the fact that we've created you know a, a whole cadre of, of teachers who some are with me yep. <laughs> some aren't you know but they've moved on to greener pastures so we you know we focus as much on trying to help teachers to get better as we do mm. players mm. to some extent. So we've had a really good crew of teachers through the years that have really done well. And so 
but you know, people can be pretty assured wherever they go around the world, they're going to get pretty standardized yeah. approach. You know, yeah. so because all these all these all these teachers and coaches go through a pretty strict certification, yeah. uh, so we don't just slap a shirt on them mm -hmm. just because you know they read my book a couple of years ago, uh, <laughs> or maybe they've taken a lesson from us. I mean. Sometimes that's the introduction that we have. You know, they they've worked with us, and now they they want to get into teaching, coaching, uh, as far as their career is concerned. But uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's worked out well. So yeah, if they want to get hold of us, you know, I'm available periodically. So uh, mm. you know, I enjoy still I still enjoy teaching. I enjoy teaching every level of play. People yeah. say, who do you like to teach more? Would you like you know the amateur tour players? Well, I mean, sure, it's it's fun working with a tour player. Whether I'm working with Rafa Cabrera Bayer, trying to get him from. 20th in the world he is now up to you know the top 10 I mean it's always rewarding and satisfying but yet again it's also when you when you see some person sort of drops you a note or an email and says hey you know what I read that tip in Golf Digest last month that thing yeah. helped me you like you can't believe thank you so much for it so that's also yeah. very rewarding so in, in many ways you know, it's more than what we charge it's the fact uh, it's as I say you know sometimes it's much better to give than to receive so yeah. you you know you feel really good about helping people uh, improve this game that we love and trying to help people to you know fulfill their potential whatever that may be and so enjoy the game and uh, have a love for the game especially young players I mean we're you know we have a full-time junior academy here now which I've started I started it with IMG many years ago and when I separated from them I said right, I want to do one on my own do it a little differently so we we have a boutique full-time junior academy now where kids can come and go to school and so on and so it's pretty cool seeing how you can become a part of these young players' lives. Yeah, it's amazing what you've done. So uh, I'm looking forward to seeing the future still, because there's still, I'm sure that you're not going to give in now. You're going to keep going, and we're looking forward to. <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, a few more years left to me. You know, <laughs> I'm the sure old there is. There yet, you know? I'm sure there is. Not in the knackered yard just yet. <laughs> <laughs> David, thank you so much for your time. Pleasure. Pleasure to be with you again. Pleasure. Thanks, Hope you enjoyed. Yes, uh, thank you. Yeah, you enjoyed that. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Well done to you guys as well. All the good work you're doing. Thank, thank you. you. What a special guest that was for us. You know, we really appreciate David's time there and some amazing stories about his uh, career and also some really good bits of information there on the golf swing. We hope you enjoyed that. Yes, and if you did enjoy that, guys, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review and a rating. We need your help to help as many golfers as we can and to get such amazing guests like David was. So uh, if you can do that, that'd be great. And we'll see you next time on the Take Charge podcast.